Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, beginning verse 9. We're still in the encounter with Nicodemus that our Lord had when Nicodemus came to him by night and basically asked him, we know you've come from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. And the implied statement is, but who are you really? And what are you here for? And why have you come? And Jesus goes into that whole statement that we looked at last week, or two weeks ago, rather. Goes into that whole statement where he talks about, you know, I I say to you that unless one's born again, he can't enter. He can't even see the kingdom of God, much less enter the kingdom of God. Unless one's born again, he doesn't even see the kingdom of God exists. Unless one is born again, he doesn't even realize there's a need to know about the kingdom of God. He's, He's happy in his lostness. He's happy in his his selfishness. He's happy in his carnal way of life. Unless one is born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, well, that's, that's a strange statement. Are you saying that you have to re-enter your mother's womb as an old man, re-enter your mother's womb and be born again in, in a natural, normal sort of way? And of course, Jesus answered him and said, you know, if you're born of water, you're born of water. And if you're born of the Spirit, you've got to be born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. If you're born of flesh, you're flesh. But if you're born of Spirit, you're Spirit. And you'll start understanding a little bit of the things about which I am speaking in this particular context. And, And we recognize that Jesus probably was thinking about Ezekiel 36, knowing that Nicodemus would have understood what was said in Ezekiel chapter 36 about being washed and being cleaned by the spirit and by the word and you can read that later and we won't go over that again but then we come to verse 9 of course we saw uh, verse 8 where he said the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sounds you don't know where it comes from or where it's going and so is everyone who comes to the spirit i saw a sermon this week entitled the free will of the spirit on that particular verse and that was kind of an interesting read that the Spirit does what the Spirit desires to do. The Spirit blows where it will, like the wind does. Uh, We can't control the wind. We can't control the Spirit. It's the the Spirit doing His work for His glory, the glory of Christ, the glorification of God. And and that's exactly what Jesus is wanting Nicodemus to understand because Nicodemus really wanted to to take the whole spiritual realm and press it into these religious rituals, you know. Nicodemus really wanted to say, you know, I want to I know what it means to know God. I want to know the fellowship of, of God. I want to I know what it means to be in the kingdom of God. But Jesus, I want to be sure that you are putting all of that in my context and in my understanding of what religion is all about. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, basically with verse 8, he says, listen, it's nothing like what you think. And you're going to be shocked above all people. You, a teacher of the law, are going to be amazed and shocked and what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and be a part of God's family through Jesus Christ because you just don't have that perspective just yet. You're going to be shocked and you're going to be amazed when that comes about. But then we come to verse 9. And we're going to look at 9 through 16 today. And we'll probably call this part 1 today. Because I think we'll stay in John 3. 9 through 16, and specifically John 3, 16, for at least two weeks, maybe even three weeks, because there's such wealth there. You know, yeah, I hear somebody, I hear people say all the time, you know, really, 
I, I don't need a lot of doctrine. I don't need a lot of deep Bible study. I don't need a lot of deep preaching. I just, all I need to know is John 3, 16. In one sense, nothing could ever be more right. And in another sense, nothing could ever be more wrong than making that statement. Wrong only in the sense that they're saying, I just want something real simple. I just want something that, you know, just, just kind of hang my hat on and say, that's everything and that's all I want to know. And that's absolutely wrong. But right in the sense that in John 3, 16, in these verses around it, you're going to see the depths of God's grace. You're going to see the depths of God's glory. And even so, I'm going to try to exhaust it in two or three weeks. And on Monday night of the Bible conference, Dr. Jarvis Williams is going to be preaching on the truth of God's love. And something tells me he'll probably find his way to this verse. So you'll hear it from not just your pastor, but from a, a visiting preacher, a scholar, when he comes to do that. I think you'll appreciate that what he has to do. I've had a chance to read his rough draft of his sermon for that night, and you're going to be blessed when you come and hear Jarvis Williams on the love of God. But hear what, hear what John, John 9, uh, 3, 9 through 16. Hear these words. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Nicodemus is perplexed by it. And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher? Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. We've seen these things, we know these things, and yet you don't accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ever ascended into heaven. It says a lot about our, some of our pop religion, pop spirituality today. No one has ever ascended into heaven, but only he, only the one, and that but there means no one else, only he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a passage where the teacher of Israel, evidently by him using that term, you are the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus was more than just a Pharisee. He was more than just a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the ones that the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrins looked to. He was the one that they, they, they assumed was the, the grand teacher of all of Israel. And you're the teacher. And yet he's perplexed by this. He said, what, what can this be? What are you talking about? And so Jesus starts trying to unpack it just a little bit for Nicodemus. He starts talking about the fact that, you know, if I talk to you about these matters of birth and rebirth and, and these things which are really kind of an earthly sort of idea, and I, I use earthly illustrations with you, and you can't understand them, how's it going to be when I speak to you of true, rich, heavenly matters? How are you going to understand what I mean when he gets to that verse in John 3, 16? How are you going to, how are you going to understand the truths of God when, when you don't understand what I'm trying to tell you about the everyday matters of religion, that it's not ritual, that it's not going through the motions, that it's not playing games with one another one day a week or two days a week, 
but it's a matter of life. It's a matter of changed life. And in this is the, the clear gospel truth that John wants us to see, and more importantly, Jesus and God wants us to see in understanding this. He says, I'm telling you this because I've come from where the truth originated. No one's ever done that. No one's ever ascended into heaven and then come back and told us what heaven was like. No, no, I, know, I know all the books that have been written and all the millions that have been made in talking about that. I know that Betty Eddy has gone to, to heaven, she says, and talked with Jesus, and Jesus told her to come back and tell everybody it's all right, that Jesus isn't the only way, that, that there are many ways to God. I know all these people have said this. I, I even know some have said, I've gone there, and this is what I've seen, and, and this is how heaven is. And, and and that's all for their profit, but not for our profit spiritually, not for our benefit spiritually. Jesus says, on the authority, no one has ascended to the Father. So when somebody comes to you and says, well, I want to tell you my story about how I went to heaven and, and what I saw and what I experienced, and, and this is what heaven's really like, you just say, I'll believe what heaven's really like from this, not from your dream or vision or out-of-body, near-death experience. I want to I know what God says about it, not what man says about it in his fantasies. He goes on to say, you know, as Moses lifted up, and here he's, of course, prophesying, speaking forth of his death that was yet to come. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up in the same manner. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying he's a serpent. And he's not talking about literal serpents here. You know the story out of, out of the wilderness experience of the, of the Israelites. They had been disobedient. They had, had uh, distrusted God. They had murmured against God. They had cried out for all sorts of things. And, and God just sent a bunch of snakes among, among them. And God didn't just allow those snakes to come. God sent those snakes. And those snakes started biting them. And people started dropping everywhere they were standing, dying from the snake bites of all things. And they became very sick from those snake bites. And, and Moses cried out to God for mercy. And God said, okay, I'll tell you what, fashion a bronze serpent, a brazen serpent, a bronze serpent, and put it on a, on a standard and hold it up high. And everyone that looks to the standard will be spared, will be saved from that experience of being bitten by the snakes. And so Moses did that. He lifted it up. And those who looked at it and believed... That, that believed that God's word was true and God's facts were true, that if you believe that I will heal you, looking at this bronze serpent, which had no healing power in itself, but because God said I would heal if you look to it, those who looked at it were healed and they lived. And Jesus says in the same way, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on a cross. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up to die. The Son of Man is going to stand between heaven and earth on a cross, hanging there, and those who look to that sacrifice, those who look to that man on the cross, that man Jesus, the man on his left and the man on his right, had no salvific power in their death. They were dying just like you and I would have died on that cross, but Jesus hung there as a sacrifice, as a substitute, and, and Jesus saying, Nicodemus, everyone who looks at the Son of Man in the same way they looked at that serpent, believing that God's Word is true and God's promises are true, everyone who looks at the Son of Man hanging on the cross will be spared, will be saved. Not just for a time. Every one of those who got snake bit died later, even though they were healed in that particular point. But everyone who, who, who was saved, looking at that brazen serpent, died later 
But those who believe in him will never die. So they will have eternal life. Eternal life. Because they believe in him and believe in the heavenly things about which he spoke. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now something interesting happened with that brazen serpent. I don't know if you know the story or not. But later on in the Bible, you will find God telling the priest to go in to the temple where the brazen serpent is housed and had been erected there, and they were, people were bowing down and worshiping the brazen serpent. And, and you'll find that God is telling the, the priest to go in, take the brazen serpent out of the temple, crush it, destroy it, melt it down, be done with it, because the people have taken that which was just a symbol was a symbol of the coming of Christ, and rather than worshiping the coming Christ, they were worshiping the symbol, and he destroyed it. Some things are good for a season that have to be destroyed later. I'll give you all sorts of illustrations, but I won't take time to do that now. But I want you to understand, it was pointing to something taking place that would never be destroyed. It was pointing to something that was not a symbol. It was a symbol pointing to something that was and is a reality. So Jesus leads up to that. And then he simply says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's no way to look at that verse and not hear a clear, profound, evangelistic message. Now, I'm in John, so I'm coming to this, and I'm exp- I do an exposition through John. We come to that verse. We look at it. We'll deal with it. And I want to, like I say, we'll spend several weeks on it. But I was amazed at one of my favorite preachers in history, You've probably heard his name mentioned from this pulpit before. Well, not this literal place, but over the other place and other places. A guy named Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon pastored in England in the mid-1800s. Started his ministry at Park Street, uh, New Park Street pulpit in, in 1855. And, uh, and so I, I, as I typically will do on the text that I'm preaching that week, at some point during the week, I will pull down, I've got all of Spurgeon's sermons, there's about 70 volumes of them, I'll pull down the Spurgeon sermon, or one or two, that relate to the text that I'm preaching on that week, and just use that devotionally. You can't preach sermons, a Spurgeon sermons, they just won't work today, so uh, you won't hear a Spurgeon sermon, but, but I always read those. They, they, they enrich me, they edify me, they do give me insight into the text usually, that, uh, that I would not normally have. And I, I, I reached up and I pulled down my index and I looked up John 3, 16 and I found one sermon. Now, now Spurgeon was, a, was not an expositional preacher in the sense we think about. He didn't go through books. He was expositional in the text he was dealing with, but he usually chose a text, preached it, went to another text next week, jumped all over the place, which would drive me crazy, but he's good. He's better than me. And so I looked, and there was one sermon on John 3.16. And I felt like what that probably did was confirm my suspicions that these weren't really all the sermons of Spurgeon, you know? Because this sermon that I found was preached in 1885, 30 years after 
he started his ministry at New Park Street and then at Metropolitan Tabernacle. But I thought I'd read it devotionally, but I was shocked at the first paragraph. I just want to share it with you, because he was shocked too. He said, I was very greatly surprised the other day in looking over the list of texts from which I have preached to find that I have no record of ever having spoken from this verse in 30 years. Now, this is all the more singular because I can truly say that it might be put forth or put to the forefront of all my volumes of discourses as the sole topic of my life's ministry. It has been my one and only business to set forth the love of God to men in Christ Jesus. I heard lately of an aged minister of whom it is said, whatever his text, he never failed to set forth God as love and Christ as the atonement for sin. I wish that much, that much the same be said of me. My heart's desire has been to sound forth as with a trumpet the good news that, quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I, I found that amusing and amazing that, that Spurgeon had never taken this as a text for a sermon in 30 years of ministry, shocked himself by it because he recognized that it really was the theme of his whole ministry. And I would, I would hope that would be said of mine, that, that my desire is to share forth the love of God, the truth of the love of God, and the truth that Christ is the only atonement for sin. And that's what you find in John 3.16. I want you to see five things in that verse this morning by way of trying to get a grasp on beginning to understand it, we won't fully understand it today. We'll come back to it. We won't exhaust everything that is being said. But I want you to see, first of all, in John three sixteen, I want you to see the gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The gift is the gift of his son. The gift is the gift of Jesus Christ, who was in heaven with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John has already established that clearly. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. They are together in God, in eternal, perfect fellowship with one another. But in this, in this trinity and in this work of atonement, in this work of salvation, it says the Father purposed to send the Son into the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. Why that? Why his only Son? Why didn't he send an angel? Why didn't he send a, a, another created being that could have come and, and perhaps done something? It's because no one else could have done anything about the problem of sin that men and women have. Only the Son could accomplish what had to be accomplished. Only God incarnate could come in the flesh and, and could come and live a sinless, perfect life on this earth totally and completely obeying God and obeying the Word of God and obeying the law of God in every iota, every jot and tittle, the Scripture says, only the Son could come. And so this gift is a valuable gift. It is a precious gift. It is a, a gift like no other gift that could ever have been given. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And that only begotten Son is the only way that atonement could have been satisfied. And that only begotten Son is the only way that you and I can be made right with God. That only begotten Son is the only way that can bring eternal life to anyone, anywhere. 
you know, we look at our vast world, and, and we, the guys, uh, 11 of us spent uh, three days this week in Louisville, Kentucky, celebrating the, 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 the unestimated gospel. I love that, that, that theme. And basically the point was that we have underestimated, the underestimated gospel, that we have underestimated the power of the gospel, that we have underestimated how powerful it is. You know, right under this pulpit lays a Bible in a, in a steel box that one of our men built for. It's a Bible I've preached from many times, and it's open and highlighted to Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And the gospel of God is wrapped up not in a system, not in a religion, but the gospel of God is wrapped up in this gift, his gift, his only gift, his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that son is the essence of the gospel, and that gospel, as is testified right under this pulpit, that you'll never see again because it's encased in concrete, but it's open there to remind us that that gospel is the power of God to save. And there is no other power. There is no other religion. There is no other morality. There is no other therapy. There is nothing on the face of the earth that can save except the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the gospel is of, by, through, and in Jesus Christ. Those who believe in the Son will be saved. He's the only way. The gift is a great gift. And I, I kind of got ahead of myself. I want to see a second thing here. I want you to see that wrapped up in the love of God is seen what has been variously called the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is really quite simple. It, it's, it's really quite easy. It says that, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and here it is, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. The essence of the gospel is faith in Jesus Christ. That faith brings about a power that changes our lives, but it's the power of the gospel and anyone who believes in him, in his gospel, in his truth, and in his person will be saved. As the servant was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross. Everyone who looked to him was temporarily saved from the snake bites that took place. The ones who look under the cross and under Christ will be saved eternally. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of belief. I want you to think for just a minute probably the most vile person you can imagine. Please don't think of me. <laughs> think of the most vile person you can imagine. I, I saw this week we were sitting down getting ready for bed. I had the news on and I saw that perhaps the man that, that epitomizes vileness more than anybody else for my generation uh, coming out of the 60s uh, was up for parole last week. His name's Charles Manson. Shocks of shocks, they denied his parole. I don't understand that. Just an animal, a vicious killer, massacred people without any impunity. He was just, he was glad to do it. He rejoiced in it. He demanded a, a, a religious obedience and religious following for his people. He thought he was a Christ figure. He, he was a crazy man and a lunatic, and he killed people, and, and they denied his parole. 
But you know that if Charles Manson were to turn to faith in Christ today, he may never get out of prison. He may never leave the bars that bind him and enslave him for the rest of his earthly life. But if he were to turn to Christ in repentance and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, he would be saved. He'd be your brother. I've got to admit that's a little creepy thought, that he would be my brother. It's a little creepy thought that I would stand in heaven one day when I stand with my heavenly Father and praising the, 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 the Lamb on the throne and, and worshiping him, that I might look over and see Charles Manson with his swastika carved in his forehead and his, his evil look in his eyes. But I will say this, it would all have been changed by then. The evil look in his eyes would be gone, and I've got a feeling in the new body, in, in the resurrection body, the swastika would be taken care of. I mean, I have a hard, I, I, gotta, I gotta tell you, I have a hard time believing in my flesh that all it takes for a Charles Manson to, to be my brother in Christ is simply for him to say, I trust in Christ. I put my faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. I trust Jesus. But the scripture says, all who believe, really believe, we'll talk about what belief means in a minute, but all who really believe put their trust in Christ will be saved. And saved means justified. Saved means made right with God. Saved means made a part of the family of God. Maybe you're older. Maybe you're thought as a Hitler. Same truth is in effect there. Had Hitler turned to faith in Christ, which there's no evidence he did. He used the church and he he used Christian language, but there's no evidence he had any faith in Christ. But had he, before that bunker experience where he took his own life, had he turned his trust to Jesus Christ, he would have been saved. Even after exterminating, being responsible for the extermination of millions of Jews and millions of Christians. He would have been saved. That's the power of the gospel. And it's so it's so simple. God says... Jesus says, the scripture says, I want you to understand, God so loved the world, and we'll get with world next week, that, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith in him, whoever trusts in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Faith is putting a firm and sincere, is beginning with a firm and sincere assent to the truth. The truth of God's atonement, the truth of God's substitute, the truth of God's redeeming work. I mean, how many people do you know that say, oh, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe he was a great teacher. I believe he was a good man. I believe he was a, a miracle worker. I believe, I believe all these things about Jesus that myriads of people believe, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person who says, I believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. I believe that he is the one who has come down out of heaven to show us the truth about God and the truth about life and the truth about eternal life. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I believe that his death on the cross was for my sin. And I trust in him and him alone to deal with my sin. 
talked to someone two weeks ago in, in Pulaski County, not in Grace Church, thank goodness. But I talked to him, they said, I've trusted Jesus, and now I'm trying my best to live a life that will be acceptable to God. I said, well, what has Jesus done? Oh, I, I, he has, he's, he, what has he done? What do you mean? I said, well, what has he done to change your heart, to change your life, to change your whole view? I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and now I'm going to try real hard to be acceptable to God. It's totally another to say, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. And by his grace, I will follow him and be obedient to him. whole different attitude than trying to live up to something and be good enough because we never will. As long as we keep co-mingling together God's grace and our works and say, oh, that's how salvation comes. I've got to be good enough. I've got to work hard enough. I've got to be, no, 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 no. You've got to trust in Christ alone. Solo Christo was the Reformation cry. Solely in Christ, only in Christ is their salvation. And only in trusting him. And not only that, you must trust for yourself. Nicodemus had a great religious heritage that he was depending on. Now, Nicodemus shows facts that he, he believed in what he was doing. There's no doubt about that. But no doubt his father and his grandfather and others were, were ensconced in Pharisaism, ensconced in the religious ways of Judaism. And yet, you have to believe for yourself. For God so loved the world... They gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, not whoever, not whoever's parents or whoever's grandparents or whoever's husband or whoever's wife or parents or but, but no, whoever personally, purposefully, intentionally, sincerely, firmly puts their trust in Christ, will not perish, but have eternal life. Wow. So there's the gift. There's the plan. And then we also see God's love shining brightly in the persons for which this gift is given. It's those who believe. Pure and simple. You know, a lot of people read this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that everybody might be saved. I mean, I, Rob Bell believes that. Wrote a book not long ago. Uh, received praise from the liberals and, and the unbelievers and condemnation from evangelicals. But he wrote a book basically said, listen, God so loved the world. Jesus died on the cross, lifted up on the cross everybody's going to be saved because of that. His atonement goes to everybody. That is the biggest lie that ever came out of hell. It's those who believe. This is a limiting thing here. It's not, a, it's not an expanding thing. It's not saying, well, that's everybody, so everybody can just rest assured they're saved. No, salvation from the, cro the, the Christ of the cross is for whoever believes in him. Firmly, sincerely, in his atonement, in his work, in him as a sacrifice, in him as a substitute, in him as the one and the only one who can solve my sin problem. 
That's why we said missionaries. I've said this before. If, 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 it's not, if it's not only for those who believe, then we, we, if it's for everybody that's on the face of the earth, then, then we ought to pull back the missionary force. We ought to save a lot of money. Because what we're doing is we're sending missionaries over there who's telling them about Jesus and they're not believing and now they're condemned to hell if they weren't condemned before. But the truth is they were condemned before. Not because they'd never heard of Jesus. They were condemned because they were sinners in need of a Savior. See, not hearing about Jesus never sends anybody to hell. Ever, anytime, at any place. But since people to hell is a sinner, of which we are all, every human being on the face of the earth, in that category. And, and so we send missionaries so that the Spirit of God will go, and He goes before us, and He, he works in hearts, and He brings people to faith, and, and people believe, and people are saved, and they will not perish, but they will have eternal life, not because... They never heard, and so they're safe, but because they did hear, and they believe. The only way to salvation is belief in Christ alone. That's Scripture, not me. That's God, not Bill Haynes, saying that. So this love shines brightly in the lives of those for whom this gift is given, those who believe, those who have trusted in Him, those who put their faith in the only begotten Son. The love of God is also seen fourthly in the deliverance that is given through this life. And it's all wrapped up in that one word, perish. The deliverance is seen in this love that they shall not perish. They, they, shall, not, they shall not be destroyed. They shall not Go out into eternity without, without the, the joys of Christ, but out into eternity with the horrors of hell, of which we do still believe in. That is a reality. Spoken of more in the Scripture than heaven is. Hell is referred to more in the Bible than heaven is. You need to know that. You need to understand that. It's a reality. It's a truth. And it's, it's reserved for Satan and his demons. That's who it was made for. But all those, who, all those who die in their sin are a part of his legions. But those who trust in Christ receive a deliverance. They shall not perish. They are snatched out of the jaws of death and hell by the Savior himself. And the love of God is seen in that. You ought to, you ought to recognize, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you're a believer, you've trusted Christ... You ought to rejoice in the deliverance. Well, I know we rejoice in heaven, and we rejoice in Christ, and we joy, rejoice in his presence right now. But boy, you ought to rejoice in the deliverance that God has by his grace and by his power has snatched you out of the, the, the very pit of hell. I love Jonathan Edwards' illustration of it that, that we're hanging like a spider over a fire. And the only thing that keeps us from going in is the deliverance of the gospel. The deliverance of God's grace. The deliverance of the power 
of the cross, which we sing about a lot. For God so loved the world that he gave the greatest gift, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Whoever believes in him shall know the greatest joy that could ever be experienced, that of being saved from the pit of hell. And then he comes to the end and he, says, he closes that statement, that one statement out with a divinely positive remark. Not only shall they not perish, but he says they shall have eternal life. This love is positive in its conclusion in that the conclusion is eternal life. It doesn't just begin the day you die. It begins the day you trust Christ. It is, a, it is eternal life that begins right now for the believer. You, you, you experience eternal life here and now, and you experience a continuation of that eternal life when you die and end up in glory with him. That's what eternal life is. It is eternal. It never ends. It never has an ending. And there's no temporalness to it here. And if we make it to the end, then there's an eternality. No, there is an eternal life that is always running for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have looked to the cross and to the one hanging there and put your trust and your faith in him. Now, later on in John's gospel, John's going to develop this very easily for us. And it's very, don't, don't, don't run away. Be back for it later in a few weeks. Because John's going to develop that when you truly trust him, there is an engagement of his spirit in your life that changes your heart dramatically, changes your life dramatically, so that it's not a matter of I get eternal life here, and now I work real hard to be sure I keep it till I die, but it's that God engages your life in such a way that you believe now, and God enters your life by his Holy Spirit, and he empowers you to keep the truth of the gospel until the day you die. He engages in your life. David Wells wrote a book about sanctification that he entitled Engaged by God. And, and I like the title because it's really what sanctification is. It, it's a life that is engaged by the power of Almighty God. It never ends. That is the gospel. That is the beginning of opening up what this verse is all about it's an understanding that we stand week by week above a bible that says that is the gospel it's the reality that we come in here every week and and you'll never see it again and there's a sadness that unless you go look at pictures of it but throughout this whole building there is the gospel written on the beams on all the steel beams the gospel of christ written there by you from God's Word. There is under this carpet, all through this building, on the concrete, the Word of God written over and over and over again. Right here it says, right under this pulpit, above that Bible, it says, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. And that's the truth we stand on. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever the most moral person you've ever met, who is just as lost as Charles Manson is, all the way to Charles Manson, 
and everything in between. The one who trusts in Christ shall not perish. The one who puts their faith in Christ shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Now, here's the application of that for you and me today. Here's a question we have to ask. Are we trusting in Christ alone? Am I, let's individualize it, am I trusting in Christ alone? Or am I trusting in religion? Am I trusting in Grace Baptist Church? Am I trusting in my parents' faith? Am I trusting in my ability to be, to be good enough for God? And those are the questions. Or am I trusting in Christ alone? There's only one person that can answer that in your life. That's you. Let's pray. Fathers, only by your grace. Only by being born again that we can even see your kingdom. It is only by your grace that we are even invited to believe. Brought into this encounter with the gospel of Christ. Father, I pray right now for men and women who are in this building who do not know you. They may be moral. They may be good in the eyes of man and in their own eyes. But their sin still abides in their life. They have not trusted you for that forgiveness and that cleansing that only you can give. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will move in their life and bring them to faith in Christ. Speak clearly, O Lord. Speak clearly through your word. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.